welcome to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, Six to Eight Weeks, Perspectives in Medicine. Today on the Six to Eight Weeks Podcast, we're going to talk again about meniscus injuries. Now, you may have realized that we talk a lot about meniscus problems, and that's largely because they are so common. Up to 50% of the population will have a meniscus problem at some point in their life. We also talk about meniscus tears a lot because the data on how to treat these and the technologies we have to diagnose and manage meniscus tears continues to improve. Today, we have Nick Kolovas, a surgeon and friend from UCSF. Nick is unique in many ways. He grew up in Zimbabwe and earned his medical degree in South Africa. He then completed his residency in orthopedic surgery here at UCSF. In his 20 years of practice, he has become passionate about understanding meniscus injuries and leads the field in meniscus preservation strategies. Nick's other passion is race car driving, and it's impossible to have a conversation with him without talking about Formula One racing. He's taken time to film race scenes in the UK in his F1 car for the movie Rush. Also, he is the only surgeon who has beat me at K1 Speed, the junior racetrack down the street, but admittedly, it was a pretty close race, and I had the lead for a majority of the time. The next 20 minutes should be a fun, informative look at meniscus problems and changing philosophies around these injuries, as well as a bit on what it's like to be a Formula One driver. Let's jump right in. Let's say Drew has a meniscus tear. He's reached his middle ages. He's been playing a lot of golf, doing some running, some Peloton. He's got some increased knee pain. How do you go about thinking about the options for him? Do you think about it as a more patient-specific thing, the type of tear pattern? What goes into your decision-making as a meniscus expert? It's all of the above. I would say if I was going to put some additional weight on something, it's more the patient factors. It's going to be the age. It's going to be the activity level. It's going to be looking at uh, BMI. It's going to be looking at alignment. The tear pattern and the history are very key as well, of course. But I think the thing about meniscus surgery today is that it's really individualized treatment. You, there's no one size fits all. And I think that I want to know a lot about where the meniscus is what you know where it is in the human being in terms of what they are what they're doing their stability looks like what their alignment looks like rather than focusing directly on okay this is a x type tear and this is the y type treatment for it nick what do you feel has changed over the past 10 15 years in terms of treating meniscus injuries that you know you're obviously an expert in this area where do you feel the evolution or change in pattern treating these injuries has gone? I mean, even starting as, as far back as 20 years ago, it's clear. I mean, there's a, there's a there's sort of trend away from meniscectomy. Meniscus preservation, I would say that the last 10 years has really sort of started becoming much more popular, much more consistent, much more sort of widely followed. And that's probably the biggest change if you look at the last 10 years. It's clear from this data to show that globally, not just in the U.S., meniscectomy rates are going down, meniscus repair rates are going up. So that's probably the biggest factor and, and the biggest change over time. I think there's a lot of other things, including sort of newer techniques, newer technologies, newer ways to fix the meniscus. I think one of the most revolutionary thing that's happened is actually kind of a, a bit smaller scale but has a lot of impact and it's not actually the meniscus, but it's MCL pie crusting. That's sort of, you know, a small little advance that has changed how we do meniscus preservation and allowed us to fix things that we never would or would fix badly, frankly, in prior years. I think there's been a lot of changes, but it's, it's all really sort of 
drifting towards meniscus preservation, sort of the, with the bigger picture of, of, of knee preservation, soft tissue, you know, knee, knee preservation, all about the cartilage at the end of the day. So you mentioned technology and introduction of new equipment. What do you think has been the most impactful in allowing us to treat more meniscus tears in a better fashion? I think it's just the advancement of all inside devices and the circumferential, the self-capture devices that have now come onto the market the last 10 years or so. I think those things have given us the ability to really have the tools or have a, a big selection of tools because you can't just use one specific type of way of fixing the meniscus. You really, if you're going to do meniscus surgery, you really have to be comfortable with inside out, all inside, outside in, a circumferential suture. And you have to be comfortable with all of those because tears come in just so many different ways and patterns that you're going to fall short if you just have one technique. So you mentioned a bunch of things that sometimes our patients or listeners or our joint replacement colleagues that listen to this may not understand. What is an inside out, inside in, all inside, all outside repair? I'm not sure what an all outside is, but <laughs> <laughs> the rest I think I can approach. <laughs> Brian's preferred fixation <laughs> technique. <Yeah. laughs> the classic meniscus repair technique is the inside out, where you pass sutures from inside the joint and pass them via an incision either on the medial or lateral side, outside the joint. So they go from inside the joint to outside the joint, and then they're tied from the outside and secure the meniscus in that way. All inside really refers to the devices where you're able to all arthroscopically place meniscus sutures with the assistance of a little plastic pledget, or now they're uh, bioabsorbable as well, or fiber stitch or uh, fiber bunch, basically. But those sit outside the capsule, they're planted outside of the capsule, and then there's a knotless method of essentially tensioning those. And then outside in is passing in a needle from the outside, either percutaneously or through a small incision, and then capturing that suture arthroscopically and bringing it back out again and then tying it back from the outside. And all of those require specific techniques and very specific instrumentation. So you oftentimes have to, and this is one of the challenges of meniscus surgeries, you oftentimes have to say to your team, well, the equipment I need is this vast array of stuff and I want it all on the back table and I'll tell you what I need when I get in there. Uh, one of the things that seems to be a lot of variability with a lot is recovery afterwards in terms of rehab protocols and do you weight bear, do you not weight bear? Sometimes we'll still get patients who come in who've been casted, I mean, crazy stuff like that. How do you determine kind of what, how a patient, particularly after repair, what their rehab protocol is going to be? How much are they going to weight bear? What goes into making those decisions? I think that's something that's also an evolution. It's probably every meniscus talk I give, I get that same question because there's not, firstly, there's not a lot of data. A lot of it's based on just orthopedic ritual, what we've always done. A lot of it's based on six weeks as some kind of a, a landmark orthopedic number that we always use. And it's the sort of traditional or conventional wisdom was if you did a repair, you put patient non-weight bearing for six weeks. And that's a bit of cruel and unusual punishment for a lot of patients. So I think that we have to, and, and I certainly have, and a number of other meniscus surgeons that I know are really trying to rationalize that to something less onerous for the patient 
both from an inconvenience point of view, but also when you have them on crutches, when you have them not moving their leg enough, the amount of muscle loss and quad atrophy and, and oftentimes range of motion loss and stiffness is really concerning. So we have gone now to what I think is a bit more of a rational approach, which is the concerning types of tears. So if you have a tear that under weight-bearing load will stress your sutures, so those are root tears and radial tears, basically. Those do still need to be protected, I believe. Four to six weeks is probably you know, a, a decent number and what we think is, is adequate. But other types of tears where the compressive loads, like a horizontal cleavage tear, for example, actually work in your favor, I've gone to putting those patients on crutches for one or two weeks, and that's about it. That is something will continue to evolve, and I would suspect, hopefully, with better constructs, maybe the additional biologic help, that we're going to get less and less crutches and less and less not weight-bearing and get you know rehab started earlier for these patients because it's really critical. Yeah, and for everyone listening, uh, we have discussed meniscus injuries in the past, I think in episode 32, along with episode 60, amongst some others. But Nick, maybe can you fill us in some on what these differences are in different tear patterns? You've mentioned a couple of them, but what do you see most commonly? What concerns you the most? And what do you look for when just trying to figure out um, how to manage different tears? Yeah, I think, you know, they come in all types uh shapes and sizes but you know the common tears are going to be your vertical tears which if they're smaller stable and those are the vertical tears they're oftentimes in the red red or the red white zone and they're they're very fixable because they are uh, essentially just require one or two or three mattress sutures if they're small if they're larger they become unstable and ultimately become bucket handle tears which is possibly one of the more common ones that i see are the bucket handle tears and those now you're starting to have a much more unstable tear that requires uh, a lot of suturing, a lot of preparation of the surfaces. And the, and the data behind bucket handle tears is a little uh, eye-opening, actually. They do have a fairly high rate of failure. And so I think there you have to, number one, be sure you have a really good construct. And number two, use whatever biologics you can to help you, whether that's microfracture at the notch or fibrin clot or even PRP. All of those things, I think, are important for helping you with bucket handles. This, probably the second most common tear I see are going to be root tears, and that's a completely different entity. It's a completely different type of tear in a completely different type of patient. Usually those are older patients, and those need to be fixed in a different way, typically transtibial. There's a lot of discussion around centralization for the for the root tears, but you know those are a, a separate entity where the tear comes off at its attachment. I often describe that to patients as a meniscus detachment rather than a tear because it, it's a little bit clearer that way that we're basically reattaching that meniscus to where it belongs. And I think in the right patient, that tear pattern tends to do well if you repair it. Another sort of fairly common one that we didn't use to repair and now I think repair not quite routinely, but oftentimes is a horizontal cleavage tear. That's where the tear really sort of extends and it usually has some degenerative component to it. These are very rare in younger patients. Maybe if you have a discoid type patient, you'll see a horizontal cleavage, but it's really sort of the older, less flexible meniscus that develops the horizontal cleavage tears. And those are where the, the tear essentially splits the meniscus 
on a horizontal level. And in previous years, we've essentially just taken out one of the leaves. And it's clear from the, all the biomechanical studies that that does compromise your meniscus function. But we now have successful ways of repairing those. And I think in the right patient, again, you've got to look very carefully at things like alignment. But in the right patient who's got good cartilage and good stability and good alignment, I think those are very, very repairable and they do well. These other types of tears that you know, you'll see less commonly are going to be the complex tears, the radial tears. Those ones are possibly you know, amongst the most difficult. Again, there's oftentimes going to be a degenerative component in the older patients. You make the decision about whether you're going to be repairing it or not, first of all. And second of all, then if you do repair it, how do you repair it? There's, there's some, you know, some newer techniques like a rebar or hash tag technique for the radial tears that seem to be very promising. Transtibial augmentation of those types of tears. The rebar or the hashtag technique is probably a little superior at this point. And then there's the tears, which is just really putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. They have so many different planes and different multiple complexities to them that you just put one bit next to the other and sew it together and keep going until you make something that looks like a meniscus. We've talked a lot about surgery, but realistically, most people that we see with meniscus tears don't actually necessarily need surgery. How do you figure out who those patients are that will do well with the non-operative management? And what are sort of the things that you look for that says, you know what, this patient can do just fine with physical therapy? I think that's possibly the biggest issue around meniscus or you know, meniscus surgery is, is indications and deciding. And it goes back a little bit to what I said in the beginning, which is you really have to look at the whole patient and then you have to look at the whole knee and then you have to look at the meniscus. And in reality, I think that there's a lot of tears that really, really deserve at least a trial of conservative management, a majority by far of degenerative type tears. So tears in older patients, unless it's a root tear, it's a separate little entity, but tears in older patients generally are non-surgical until proven otherwise. I think you have to really, um, emphasize that to the patient and go through that process because oftentimes the patients are coming to you and saying, I just quote unquote, want it fixed, right? That's, that's their mindset. A lot of times when they're coming in, they've been told they have a tear and they just want it fixed. And there's a lot of patient education you have to go around or deliver to really sort of have the patient buy into the fact that actually many of these tears do not need to be fixed and they may not actually quote unquote heal but the knee will accommodate to where the, what the meniscus is doing. And, you know, oftentimes I tell patients, I'll bet you if we get an MRI of your other knee, which doesn't hurt at all, we'll find some degenerative changes in there that a, that a radiologist is going to call a tear. And there's an example of a knee that's coping just fine without surgery. Younger patients with acute traumatic tears, you know, certainly anything that happens with a combined ACL injury or something like that, any kind of mechanical symptoms sort of alert you to the fact that this possibly could be worth doing surgery for. But I think you've really got to be sure you've got all of those factors in your decision-making process. And then, of course, what we have with meniscus surgery that uh, we don't, our arthroplasty colleagues don't have is this sort of 
unpredictability of what happens when we get in there. We have a great look at what the MRI looks like and, and MRI is better and better and better. But either due to the passage of time or just the fact the MRI doesn't pick it up, oftentimes when we get in there, something that may have looked repairable no longer is. You know, we have to come out of the surgery and say, well, actually, good news and bad news. Good news is you can wake bed tomorrow. Bad news is we had to take out some of your meniscus. So that we don't, you know, our orthoplasty colleagues can say, can tell patients that day one, this is what will happen on day five, this is what will happen on day 30, day 60. It's pretty standardized. We have this long conversation in the office about it could be this, it could be that. This is what it's likely to be. But there's always that question of what you're going to find when you get in there. Now, completely switching gears, Nick, you're a, an avid race car driver. Tell us a little bit more about how you got into that and you know, what kind of car do you have and, and what really uh, has brought you to do that sport? It has very little to do with meniscus surgery, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I guess indirectly you could say it, it, it helps fund it, but that's, that's, a, that's, the only con- that's the only real connection. The reality is I, I was a motorsports motor fan from, from day one, I can, as far back as I can remember. It was never something that I was able to even approach until I finished residency and uh, and actually went into uh, you know into practice and uh, started generating uh, some kind of an income and actually the first race car I bought I I phoned up my my uh, neurosurgeon friend Brian Andrews and I said hey there's this car I want to buy I can't afford it you want to be partners with me and he said sure but just don't tell my wife so that was the beginning and I've uh, over the course of the last 20 plus years uh, racing have sort of focused down on what I like. And it's really the, the single-seater sport, no, sorry, single-seater race cars. We call them formula cars. There's different types of formulas. There's all everything from Formula One down to Formula Juniors, Formula 500s. It all just depends on the specification of the cars. But they're purpose-built race cars. They're not road cars like Porsches and Ferraris and things that have been modified to go racing. These are single-seater race cars. They only live on the racetrack. They don't go anywhere else. They don't do anything else. And those are sort of my preferred cars. I've raced a whole bunch of different things. Um, uh, and, and, of course, I like the, the vintage cars. I've done modern car racing as well, but I do like the vintage cars. Um, a lot of it goes back to what you idolized when you were a teenager or a kid. And so I've had the privilege of being able to drive some of the cars I remember seeing when I was a kid watching, you know, watching or reading in magazines more than watching on TV. So that's sort of how it's, it's come, it's become another part of my life. Um, and it's, it's part of, it's, you know, it's an essential part of my life, but I've been doing it for a long time too. So I guess at some point in time, everything has to end, but right now I'm still as active as I'd like to be. I'm picturing you in a Model T racing around the track. So (laughs) maybe we don't have our timelines synced up perfectly. I know you've been doing race car driving for a while. I I know we've done some fun miniature racing and you craftily would push me into the sidewall right before I thought I was going to win. How would you describe your race style at this point? Uh, Yeah, treachery and craftiness always wins over aggressiveness, but... Some of that, some, so that's some of that is experience. Racecraft, we will see this all the time. We'll see people who come out and, and go out on the track and set incredible lap times. But when, when it comes for race, race time, um, they really seem to fall behind because they don't understand 
the strategy and the racecraft that comes into it. Um, and it's hard to do that when you're under incredible amounts of physical and mental pressure when, you know, split second decisions give you consequences, sometimes very big consequences. So I think one of the things about racing for a long time is you do tend to think more of a strategy game and be a little bit more crafty from that point of view. The other thing is, I think that if you've been racing for a long time, you just have a bit more comfort racing closer to other cars being in that environment and then if you find an opportunity that decision making of whether or not you go for it you you go for that gap and the consequences and the risks of doing that that comes a little bit more with time and practice too but that all said you know every now and then i'll go out there with some 20 year old who's been on the track maybe a year or something and they're just unbelievably fast unbelievably good just a natural level of talent that's un, you know unmatchable for for amateurs like ourselves. Nick, what's the scariest experience you've had in racing? <laughs> the actual or the near ones. There's been a lot of near misses. Most of racing is all about near, near misses, actually. But if you race for any amount of time, you're going to have crashes. It's just part of what happens. And in 20 years, I've had three big ones. Uh, it's always surprising. I've walked away from all of them. Uh, but it's always surprising how violent they are. You just are constantly amazed at how much force is going through your body while things are deforming around you. All the time, you know, the, 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 the sort of scale of time just sort of slows down and you're able to somehow feel everything that's happening and uh, just are waiting for some kind of snap or break in your bone or something like that. And that's the scary part is like, not knowing exactly how far this thing's going to go. It's kind of like kind of like earthquakes in San Francisco. You know, you, you start to feel them and you think, okay, is this going to be a big one? What's going to happen? And then it's over with. But um, uh, I've been fortunate, but those are, definitely the, the, those are definitely the scariest and the worst moments of racing. Those are when you say, I don't know if this is really worth it. And then a week later, you're back at it. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today on a wide-ranging conversation about meniscus surgery, car racing, and, and everything in between. So thanks again for taking the time. And, and to all our listeners, check out our podcast, Six to Eight Weeks Perspective in Sports Medicine, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, and soon to be a new website on the internet that we'll share with you in one of our next episodes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. What do you think of this topic? Connect with us now. In addition to finding our contact form, you'll also find our social media links in our entire six to eight weeks episode archive. Help us grow our listenership by liking, subscribing, and sharing everywhere. We're eager to hear from you, and we'll be sending you more great thought-provoking content in less than six to eight weeks.